I just didn't want to be like, you know, Julia Roberts going in search of monkeys, and I just didn't want to be like, that makes me cringe. Really the most important thing for me is that travel matters. Travel changed my life. It can change yours. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with Andrew McCarthy, whose travel writing byline began to appear in magazines like National Geographic Traveler more than 10 years ago, when he was named the 2010 Travel Journalist of the Year by the Society of American Travel Writers, a lot of people in that world wondered, wait, is that THE Andrew McCarthy? And by THE Andrew McCarthy, of course, they meant this Andrew McCarthy. You told me you couldn't believe in somebody who didn't believe in you. I believed in you. Always believed in you. Just didn't believe in me. That's Andrew's character Blaine talking to Molly Ringwald's Andy at the end of the 1986 John Hughes movie Pretty in Pink. And yes, the award-winning travel writer Andrew McCarthy is the same Andrew McCarthy who was ranked number 40 on VH1's list of the 100 greatest teen actors of all time and who rose to fame a generation ago by starring in movies like St. Elmo's Fire, Less Than Zero, and Weekend at Bernie's. Andrew has, in recent years, become something of a renaissance man. He still acts from time to time, but he's also known for directing TV shows like Gossip Girl and Orange is the New Black, as well as writing the best-selling travel book The Longest Way Home, which came out in 2012, and the YA novel Just Fly Away, which came out last year. I've been friendly with Andrew through travel writing circles since 2012, and when I was in New York last month, he and I sat down and had a conversation that starts by discussing his early break into travel writing. We do touch a bit on Andrew's life journey as an actor, director, and public figure who still gets recognized in the street, but for the most part, we geek out on travel. Andrew talks about why he likes to travel alone, how he finds ways to meet people on the road, and how he takes notes in the field when he's working on a travel story. He also talks about the role of fear in travel, how fear can all too often keep people from traveling, but also how confronting fear through travel can change your life, much like it changed his life when he was walking the Camino de Santiago in Spain more than 20 years ago. Let's listen in. Well, when I won the Lowell Thomas, that, that award in 2010, that's when uh, you know, you, you can do anything and then you win an award and suddenly you're, you're very good at it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Overnight, your percep perception has changed. People that wouldn't respond to your email pitch, suddenly you're asking you to do stories. You know, but um, I remember when I went there to, they gave me the thing and they, they were looking for, they were putting together, I guess the Lowell Thomas people were putting together like a video of the things and they couldn't find anything on this Andrew McCarthy, the travel writer. They kept coming up with all this Andrew McCarthy actor stuff and they, they'd never heard of this travel writer, Andrew McCarthy guy. And so, um, and I was sort of outed as being Andrew McCarthy, the actor travel writer when I was doing a story for a far magazine and I was uh, arrested in Ethiopia um, or detained or whatever. And, and so, and at that, they'd given me a little camera to take with me to film stuff at the time. They were a little ahead of the curve on that. And so flip I, cameras, right? A flip camera, they, yeah. They sent me to St. Petersburg with one yeah. of those things. Yeah. And so, and I didn't know how to use it very well. But the only thing that I was able to capture was like this seven second thing of me and me going, it seems I've been arrested. And then showing the guy with a gun arresting me. And I was able somehow, my computer idiocy to send that to them and they posted it and then it was picked up on like a CNN crawl on the TV. My mother goes, well, you were arrested in Ethiopia. So then it was, it became, oh, the actor is now this sort of travel writer dude. But, um, so I, but I was very conscious when I first started not to, 
to try and keep them separate because I didn't want people to easily dismiss. So by the time people found out that I was one and the same person as that, the guy who was in Pretty in Pink thinks he's a travel writer. I'd already written for New York Times and National Geographic Travel and The Atlantic and things so that it had, oh, wait, we can't, we better take an extra look at this if we're going to look at all. You know what I mean? So I was very conscious of sort of, sort of agenting myself the way I would have wanted to have been agented as a young actor. Like I want to work for the, write for this magazine and this one and this one and this newspaper so that I set myself a certain standard of you know, company that I keep so that I would be, because you're looked upon in that way, you know. So that was very deliberate in that. And then, of course, you, you know, you win the award and then, so then things were sort of, I could write for more outlets more easily. I think people were cognizant of that. I mean, you talk about travel writing a lot, weren't you just? I do now, since then, yes, then. But I mean, that first, those first couple of years, my first article was in 2004 um, for Natio Traveler, where I'd met Keith Bellows and uh, I, it took about a year for me to badger him to have him finally agree to let me go do an article. And he's basically said, I basically said, look, if it doesn't work, you don't have to pay me. And he went, that's fine. I, I'll, I can live with that. So he sent me to Ireland. He said, where do you know well? And I said, this little corner of Ireland I know well and I don't read much about. So he sent me there and I did that article. And he said, you know, he told me to bring home 6,000 words. And so I did. And, but his whole notion was he'd cut it down to 3,000 because it would be so terrible that he could fix it if I had enough material. So I gave him the article. He said, this is really good, but it's way too long. Cut it in half. So anyway, I wrote that article. And then he gave, gave me another one. And then it sort of spread out from there. Yeah. Um, and then things reached a tipping point, And suddenly I did a bunch right in 2009. And then I won that award in 2010. And then, you know, then I was a travel writer. Right. And, and I don't think you can sneak, we well, are Travel Journalist of the Year. You have to write more than, you have to like give a portfolio to get Travel Journalist of the Year, right? You, yeah, there were a bunch of articles, yeah. Yeah, so you can't just be the, like, the celebrity one-off type person. I mean, years ago, I think Drew Barrymore said that she, her dream job was being a travel writer, and I'm sure somebody has Yeah, you know, something. I just didn't want to be like, you know, Julia Roberts going in search of monkeys, and I just didn't want to be like, that makes me cringe, you know? So I just, I was very conscious of pulling way back and just, quietly going about my business. Because honestly, travel was very, it's not like, to me, it's not a frivolous thing. It's what I wanted to do because travel changed my life and it mattered and it was important. Under, that's the thing, you know, that's why I became successful at traveling for two reasons, because I know how to tell a story inherently because that's what I've been doing my whole life. And, you know, of course it's tell me a story, don't sell me a destination, right? That's the most important thing. But, under, but really the most important thing for me is that travel matters. Travel changed my life, it can change yours. It's under every article I write, every well, the book I wrote, it, it, it's under everything. Is that This is a viable, real thing and it's really important. And so my passion for that, like anyone's passion for anything, if you have any aptitude for it, comes through and you don't have to know why, but it's just like, yeah, this, has, this guy's thing has a certain energy to it and that's what it is. Well, let's walk our way through the process that, that, that led you to being a travel writer because, um, actually, do you have, when people see you, do you get recognized much? Mm, yeah, I mean, it depends, but yeah. Like, have you been recognized in the last 48 hours? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, so, just out of random curiosity, what, when people say one thing, what is it? Oh, well, it depends. It, it's very easy to profile people. Okay. <laughs> Mostly, I'd say Pretty in Pink or, you know, Truck Driver's Love Weekend at Bernie's. Right. Or there's a certain kind of shady kind of reformed drug addict that likes Less Than Zero and that kind of thing. And occasionally, some dude, like I was in Paragon just a couple of days ago when a guy came up to me and said, I love your book. You know, those people always stop me up. The other people, I go, oh, thanks, thanks. Those people, I go, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, that is a different feeling. 
Well, I think you know, movies are some movies are a different monster than books. You know, people watch a lot more movies. Even people who read a lot of books watch a lot of more movies usually. Well, those movies are also older, and they don't mean. You know, I understand how and why they mean stuff to people, but they're long. You know, I'm not a nostalgic person generally, so they don't mean that much to me at this point. Well, I think people use them, especially like the teen movies, to mark time. You know, like it. They absolutely, they absolutely, can, and those are all they watch them and just at a certain moment in their lives that was important, you know, when they're coming of age like that. And, you know, those movies also came out, you know, in the mid-80s there when VCR was just coming out. And so people for the first time could take home movies. And who was taking home movies but young people? And what movies were they watching but those movies? So suddenly they'd watch St. Elmo's Fire 20, 30 times, whereas generations before that, you'd see it once and then maybe it came on the, you know, million-dollar movie in a couple of years on Channel 9. But suddenly they were, took ownership of us in a way, in a very real way. And so that's, that's what I always think those movies sort of locked in so heavily with a generation. And they, you know, they took young people seriously and their problems seriously in a way that movies hadn't, you know, those John Hughes movies. And I use John Hughes' sort of loose umbrella for all those young teen kind of coming of age movies. They, you know, they, they had something. They, 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 they took the struggle. The struggle is real, <laughs> you know? Well, so you're this guy, uh... He was recognizable, you were, and you were young when you became successful, right? Yeah, in my early 20s, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I wrote down some, some quotes about, have you read, read Michael Crichton, Crichton's book about uh, travel? No. Michael Crichton's book, Travels? No. Um, actually, Brett Eston Ellis, he wrote Less Than Zero, He did, right? yeah. He wrote about how fame, and you can, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of this, he said that, um, or he quoted somebody else saying that uh, fame is exciting for about a year, and then you spend the rest of your life trying not to be humiliated. <laughs> does, that, does that resonate at all? I understand the humiliation part. Um, I mean, I, I, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean... Well, I'll give you the Michael Crichton one, too, and then you can chew on them for a second. I do want to get you to your travel epiphanies, but Michael Crichton said something along the lines of celebrity or fame. Um, it, it seems interesting, but when people meet you, um, they don't really want to meet you, you know, it's like just like they don't want to go to Disneyland and see Mickey Mouse take his, his head off, you know, they don't really want, they want to meet a version of you and well, that's not the true. actual that's you. That's certainly true. Yeah. And then, you know, they want to meet their projection of their idea of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so did you have a, did you have a complicated relationship with your own celebrity? Um, in, in oh yeah, the, I think it, it terrified me, I think. I mean, I felt just so, I felt in hindsight, you know, I've often said I don't wish success like that on anyone under 30. I, I feel, uh, it just wasn't something I was, you know, I wasn't a Kennedy, I wasn't bred to succeed, you know, I was, it was just an odd thing and I didn't even know I was successful until hindsight really, that it, those movies and I was in, it was un. I wasn't aware of it really in a certain way. And yeah, I was not comfortable with it, certainly. Yeah, for sure. So in, in, in your book and in other interviews, you've, you, unlike most people, have a very specific travel epiphany. Like when travel became an important part of your life, it was in a very specific situation on the Camino. Um, did you travel when you were younger? No, I mean, I traveled, like my family, we grew up in New Jersey, went down the shore in the summer or something, but I didn't travel anywhere. My parents said they'd take us to Europe when we were old enough to appreciate it. We never went, so I don't know what that means. But, um, you know, it's, uh, no, I didn't, I wasn't a traveler, you know. I, I hadn't, I traveled for movies, I guess, and stuff when I was young. But yeah, I went, I walked across the Camino in the, the Santiago in the early 90s, 93 or so, or something like that. And what made you want to go there? 
Well, that was I read a book. I was uh, not far from here at uh, Rizzoli's bookstore on West Broadway, which is now long gone. Uh, and somehow, reason, I picked up a book by a guy named Jack Hitt called Off the Road, and it was about his walk across the Camino. And something about that book made me want to do that. I just said, I'm doing that. And I don't know why. You know, I was searching, I guess, in that way without knowing I was searching. And, uh, and so I went. I had no idea how to find out anything about the Camino back in those days, and because uh, there was no internet really, and, uh, and so Jack hit worked at Harper's Magazine, so I called up Harper's and I asked Jack <laughs> how to get. What do I do? And he said, "You just get some shoes and you start walking, dude." And you know, anyway, he was really helpful to me. And I called. I was, I called him a lot. I called him like every day for <laughs> a few weeks till finally he said, "Like you know, Andy, just start walking." But there's something delightful about pre-internet communication when you read a book. Well, I you... mean, you read a book and then in the back of the cover it says Jack was an editor at Harper's Magazine. So I call up Harper's Magazine. And they put me on the phone with him. It was great. And you know. But how else would I ever have found out? You know what I mean? I'd never heard of the Camino. I'd never met anybody who'd done the Camino. This is long before it was kind of hip and whatever. I don't know if it's hip, but it's not, it's known now. Um, anyway, I never knew anybody who did it. And he was, you know, very helpful and told me what to do, which is basically get some shoes and start walking. And, uh, which I did and which I hated, you know. I, I, was, I went to Saint Jean Pierre de Port in the south of France and walked over the Pyrenees and then had, after three days walking, had to stop in Pamplona for a week because my blisters were so bad because I'd bought my boots on the way to the airport because I knew nothing about being outdoors or hiking or anything. I'd never hiked anywhere um, from suburban New Jersey, you know. So anyway, uh, I walked, hiked for a couple of weeks. It was miserable. And then uh, in the high Meseta, about in the middle of Spain, there are these high, these wheat fields that you walk through for days on end and they're notorious for being, you know, the difficult part of the Camino and it's really hot and it's lonely. And I was lonely anyway. I didn't talk to anyone while I was walking. Uh, I was very isolated and I was feeling like a failure and I was feeling all of my insecurities were all, the things I went there to overcome were totally having their way with me and I was miserable. And so I had a tantrum in, the, in a field of wheat. I broke down hands and knees, sobbing, screaming and total just sort of fit. Um, like a toddler, and uh, eventually that subsided. My limousine did not come pick me up, so I, I walked on to the next town, and the next day I woke up and I felt like I'd, I felt different, and I felt like I'd, I was set out walking, and I felt like I didn't, I had forgotten something, like I didn't have something that, I, re I was very aware of this feeling, like I'm forgetting, I really, what am I missing? I just felt different, like my back, the space between my shoulder blades just felt sort of lighter. I'm like, do I have everything? Anyway, so I'm walking and I sat by the side of a barn to take my break in the morning, you know, having to make cheese and water and all that sort of stuff. And then I was aware of being very conscious, you know, sort of the, almost the texture of the air on my skin and the colors around me were bright. And I, was, I, I had this realization in that moment that uh, what I didn't have with me that day, what I'd forgotten was this sense of fear that had always walked with me everywhere that I'd gone, sort of almost my whole life. And it was a real revelation. I mean, like I've said many times, that it was as if I'd, I was unaware of its existence until that moment of its first absence. When, and then I felt like myself in a com completely, in a way that I always wanted to feel about myself. I just felt like me. So, and I'd already been successful in movies, I'd had this whole sort of public life, and yet this is the first time where I really felt like, oh wow, there I am, you know. And so, uh, 
Except for the first time when I acted when I was 15, like we talked about, you know, where I felt that same sense of there I am. You know, so I pursued acting from that, and then I pursued traveling from that moment by the side of the barn, and then, yeah, go on. Did you book another trip immediately? I yeah, mean, I, okay. went, uh, I went, I got home and I went to Greece for some reason. Somebody had met on the community lived in Greece, so I went to Greece, and then, uh, then the next big trip I took, I went down to, uh, to Vietnam and Cambodia, Southeast Asia. Um, there was a girl I'd met who lived in uh, Singapore, and so I went to visit her in Singapore, and then I went traveling around Southeast Asia. Um, and it was a great time to be in Southeast Asia because it was... This is also the 90s? Yeah, it was the next year, like the ne okay. 94, 95, somewhere around there. And um, when there, it was not as well trodden as it is now, you know. So um, anyway, I was in Saigon and I was walking down the street and this kid pulled up next to me on his scooter and he said, hop on, I'll give you a ride. And I told him to leave me alone and he wouldn't leave me alone. And so I hopped on his scooter and he gave me a ride and he showed me around Saigon. Uh, not a Saigon from the travel books, but like his, where his father had been arrested, where his mother attended this garden, this really sad public garden with everything wilted. And it was just, we're just wandering around this garden. I'm like going, what the fuck am I doing with this kid wandering around this baking heat? And then he took me to some temple that he'd been to that he wasn't allowed to go back to. It was just like this weird afternoon, but it's somehow fantastic in its own way. And I went back to my hotel room and for a reason that I still have no idea why, I, I took out a pen and piece of paper, I suppose because I was lonely, and I wrote down what happened. People had told me I should keep a journal, you know, where I was traveling, and I was a bad journal keeper. Everything I wrote was like, the food sucks, I'm lonely, I want to go home, you know. So I wrote down what happened to us, and in a story form. I wrote down the dialogue, I wrote down an arc of the thing, and when I finished that, I had the exact same feeling again by the side of the barn and when I was 15 years old in that play. I just felt like, there I am. So uh, that was a shock to me because I was a terrible student. I'd never done students. So I started doing that. I started writing little stories and vignettes of what happened to me. Not journally, but like stories of like, you know, true first person narratives, but trying to structure them in narrative ways. And I did that for a number of years, just for myself, just to sort of keep me company on the road. Just paper in, in journal. Yeah, and then I started getting notebooks and like, you know, writing okay. down stories of vignettes of what happened. And pa you know, but paper notebooks? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then I started getting those moleskin notebooks and, you know, I think, and um, I don't even know if I got those then, but no, I used it. I used the, the um, I remember what I used was those um, shorthand notebooks that flip over the top, those big five by seven notebooks that were really awkward to walk around with because I'd fold them and put them in my pocket. and. Um, and I was left-handed, so I had to have things to open at the top, otherwise my hand would have been on the spiral, you know? Anyhow, uh, so I did that for a number of years till finally I decided I wanted to do something with it, and then I met an editor and blah, blah, blah. The rest is what happened. And so did you continue to create time for travel in your life? Yeah, whenever I wasn't working, I traveled, and always alone. Uh-huh, yeah. And so did you, I mean, there's, in your book, uh, the Long Way Home, there's, there's sort of a travel philosophy that comes out of that. I mean, you, you're clearly someone who doesn't really like luxury vacations compared to just sort of wandering around anonymously. You're, you're a solo traveler. Um, is this something that you developed just in the course of, of, did it come out of your personality? Did it come out of uh, people that you've been reading? Did you have? Well, it came out of my personality in the sense that I'm a solitary person, so I liked going alone. And I really went traveling for, not to see the world, but to see myself in the world, you know, and to find out about myself. I've said that travel was my university. You know, I just learned about myself and traveling. 
Um, but I traveled, I started traveling that because someone gave me a copy of Paul Theroux's uh, Great Railway Bazaar. You know, and his philosophy, as you know better than me, is sort of go, go far, go alone, don't come back for a long time, get out of touch. And that just made complete sense to me. So, you know, those two books changed my life, really. Uh, Jack Hitt's book and, and Great Railway Bazaar. And not Great Railway Bazaar, sorry, the uh, Patagonia book. The, um, the, the, the Great, oh no, <laughs> the uh, Old Patagonian Express. Old Patagonian Express, yeah. that one, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that was the first one of his I read. Uh, anyway, so those two books, yeah, I read that and I just went, that makes sense. And so that's how I pursued traveling. And, I, you know, I don't believe in traveling, you know, in a, go to a fancy hotel because you go down to the concierge, you meet the concierge, and that's who you meet, and you go to the restaurant he tells you to go to, and you don't, you, you know, it's, it's, when I go with my wife, that's fine, but it's different if you're traveling. That's not traveling, that's vacationing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I tell my travel writing students sometimes that if their story has too many concierge, concierges, Well, if there's any concierge or a taxi driver, you're just a lazy writer. Yeah, yeah, that you haven't, you haven't been doing the kind of travel that engenders actual interesting travel writing. <laughs> Interaction, yeah. I mean, there's a huge gulf in the world of travel writing. Um, I mean, there's some pretty crappy travel writing Most out there, Most of it too. is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, did you, were, there, were there publications that you read back then, or were you... Did you, were you finding yourself sort of bumping up against depictions of place that didn't accord with the way you like to travel? Luckily, I didn't know very much in the sense that, you know, when I, I, I bamboozled Keith Bellows to give me a chance to write, and as I was going out to do my first story, I said, you know, I actually, you know, after I badged him for a year to let, him, let me do this, I kind of said, you know, I don't really know how to write a travel article. And he said, that's good, just do your thing. You know, and if I had one thing, I just had a voice. I had my voice in the way I traveled and I believed in that because I knew, like, going back to what we said, that it mattered and this is, I just, if I had anything to offer, it was my experience of doing it. So that's what I wrote from, you know, and my experience of that, it mattered and it changed my life and, and I knew dialogue propelled a story and all that kind of stuff. So I just wrote my way right away. That's, you know, you can learn all the other stuff. You can learn how to do a good lead and a good kicker and set the furniture and all that stuff, which I had to learn. You know, somebody said to me the first time someone said, yeah, but you haven't set the furniture here. I'm like, it's not an article about furniture, you know? <laughs> so, but you can learn all that stuff. What you can't learn is your own voice, right? So, you know. Well, you, know you must better. have had a relationship with storytelling. Or were, you, were you directing? Just some acting and stuff. You know, I hadn't, I, was, I started directing about the same time I started writing. Okay. But, um, no, I suppose, you know, I, I suppose in acting you have that, you know, and directing certainly it's much more active and conscious than in just acting, but uh, yeah, I, I just kn knew that. I knew inherently that, that, that notion that tell me a story, don't sell me a destination was everything, everything. I, th I think, um, and actually that's a big tension in travel writing because a lot of travel writing is about selling destinations. It's about destinations and yeah. it's like, you know. Always, you know, I, I wrote a, I pitched a story once, I said, let's do, uh, to, again, to National Geographic Traveler, Keith, I said, let's do, I want to go looking for the perfect cup of tea in China. And Keith said, yeah, it's interesting. I just did China, though. So let's go looking for the perfect cup of tea in Darjeeling, India. He said, go ahead. And again, that's about story. It's not destination. Destination doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it, it, all that matters is if, if you write something and 
it has that thing that we were talking about of like underneath it is this propulsion of like this is important it can change your life it doesn't matter if i'm writing about darjeeling or china or whoever you can finish reading it and you go i'm going to go to germany because i've touched something in you that's that same thing in me that has excited me it excites you but you have a passion for germany somewhere and so suddenly you put down my article and you're going to germany it doesn't matter i've i i if i've touched you and planted that seed then that's a job well done do you hear from people that have read yeah. your stuff and, and gone places yeah. yeah i just wrote about jordan going to petra and jordan and someone uh wrote to me that they'd been afraid to go to uh the middle east like that and went and had a life-changing experience yeah rarely but you did yeah well it sounds like fear is a big a i think big fear is the dominant thing and you know that's a huge american issue it's a global issue but it's certainly an american one i'm certainly about traveling the world americans are terrified of the world and constantly judge it and all that stuff but uh yeah my whole soapbox is that you know you go out there the, the what's his name mark twain line travels fatal to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness you know you go out into the world and you come back you're a different person and you can't help but go, well, wait a minute, that's not what they told me it was going to be. And really, but more than that, it's about putting yourself in a position of vulnerability where you have to ask for help. Because that's when we come back to being more right-sized, as I like to say. You know what I mean? That changes everything. If you just go, can you help me? You can't be arrogant and defensive and acting like you know everything if you're saying, can you help me? And the act of doing that is even more important than the person who's receiving you. They're always going to receive you. Very rarely do people say no if you ask for help. But it's, I think it's more important than even them. It's that we can go can, putting ourselves in that position and making ourselves vulnerable again. That is everything in trouble. And then you find out you're received and it's by a guy who you thought was going to try and ch cut your head off. My God, that blows your mind. But I really think it's more about us than about even them. He received me. Yeah, you've received everywhere. You're just so busy being aggressive and defensive, you can't be received because you're so busy pushing hard against it. But I think that's the massive thing. Yeah, we had an exchange uh, years ago. I tweeted something about, how did, how did you, how was I on your radar? Did you read me in World Hammer or, or did you? I think your first book, the Vagabonding book. Okay. You know? Um, anyhow, so for some reason you were following me on Twitter. I tweeted something about Camus and then you, you, you uh, emailed me later. And actually, as I was rereading the Camus quote, it sounds like something that could have come out of your book. Oh, I um, probably stole it then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this was after your book came out. I forget the timeline exactly, but it says, what gives uh, value to travel is fear. It is the fact that at a certain moment, when we are so far from our own country, we are seized by a vague fear and an instinctive desire to go back to the protection of old habits. This is the most obvious benefit of travel. At the moment, we are feverish, but also porous so that the slightest touch makes us quiver to the depths of our being. Travel, which is like a greater and graver science, brings us back to ourselves. What he said. You know, that being porous is huge. You know, we're just afraid to have those holes in ourselves, so we just push out so hard against them and rev our motorcycles and get aggressive. And it's like, whoa, whoa, dude, just, that's not who you are. Yeah, I guess, you, I guess this is literally the kind of thing that you, that you talk about in your book, that people say, I can't afford to go. You know, the, the, the American fear of travel is so tied up into in different factors, one of which is... Well, money's never money, that's all obvious. You know, money always represents something else. But I do think lots of people go, I can't afford to travel, and I think that's nonsense. I think, you know, you can travel extraordinarily cheaply. You know better than I do. I mean, you can travel incredibly cheaply. Anything that, you know, I remember once years ago asking my brother, I said, Peter, I'm going to go to Spain, you want to go? No. 
he came back at me so hard with no, so fast. And I was just like, I felt like I'd been slapped in the face. I went, whoa. I was just so afraid to go. It's just Spain. I mean, you know, but I mean, I, I think that's, uh, that's Americans. We're just terrible. What, well, you, what's the statistic? You know, 39% of us at most have passports. Half of us have ever used them, you know, to go mostly to go to Canada or Mexico. I mean, it, it's staggering. You know, if Americans traveled, the world would be a different place, period. It would just be totally different, you know. Do you travel cheap? Do you indulge in yourself sometimes? Or, or do you mix with backpackers? Well, it depends if I travel with my wife or my kids or alone. If I'm alone, I travel very cheap. If I'm with my wife or kids, I travel less cheap. And does that affect, like when you're on magazine assignment, you're usually traveling alone. Yeah, and you're traveling cheap because they don't have any money. Yeah. Right. And you're just doing better off if you're, you know, you're not going to meet anybody traveling not cheap. You know, you're just not, you know that. You're gonna, meet, you're gonna meet people who work in the travel industry and they're not giving you anything. You know, if you have to go find dinner, if you have to go to get three meals out of your hotel because your hotel doesn't serve any food or your housing thing where you're staying, then, then you're gonna meet people. If you can order room service, you go, oh, fuck it, I'll turn on CNN and watch get room service. I mean, there's no story in that, you know. And travel writing was good for me in the sense that I, I could also go places and not talk to anybody for a week and have a very good time, but travel writing, has forced me to, because you need quotes, right? So it forced me to interact in a way that I might not otherwise. Do you have a strategy for interacting with people? Oh, I'll just go ask dumb things. I'll often start with, hi, can you help me? Do you speak English? And then they're like, yeah, what do you want? You know, or no, I can't, my, my brother over there speaks English. And suddenly you're going over to that guy and he's leading you down to this dishwasher in the back of a restaurant who's taking you home to dinner. And suddenly there you got a story, you know? But yeah, I usually just ask dumb questions. Just dumb questions. And I don't speak other languages, so I end up, would you speak English? And then, you know, they roll their eyes and help me. Do you, do you learn pleasantries or anything, or do you just swagger in and... and... I don't swagger at all. Okay. I, 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 um, I anti-swagger. Yeah. I put myself in a position of being naive of, you know, because it's, it's, it's like when you're writing, you're sort of a character of yourself. You're not yourself if you're writing about yourself. You're a character of a facet of your, who you are. So when I travel, right, I often put myself on the, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, what, what, what's that thing there? How does that work? I, you know, I try and make them, let them help me feel as confident and relaxed as possible. You know, take charge of me in a way that uh, allows them to become relaxed and say things they might not say otherwise. And I never tell people I'm writing for an article for anything. I often run to the bathroom 10 times, you know, not 10, but several times in the interview to jot down notes because I'm like, I'm afraid to, you know, and they think I have prostate problems or something because they're like, why does this guy go to the bathroom all the time? But uh, I won't tell, you know, you tell somebody you're writing for National Geographic Travel, the minute they, you know, they either clam up or they become a know-it-all. Right. Right. So I rarely ever tell people, except at the very end. I go, by the way, I'm writing an article. Do you mind if I get your email so I can fact check you, you know? And then they're like, oh, cool. Yeah. But still, even if they're oh cool, their behavior would change if they knew they were going to be in a magazine. Sure. Right? Do you, have, do you just like keep a notebook in your pocket then and, and yeah. then write notes as you... Yeah. As you uh, and yeah, what, and I just write details. Details, details, details. I don't write down any facts. Facts I can get on the internet. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just write details of things which trigger my imagination. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or trigger my memory, I should say. And, uh, you know, I, I often find I'm surprised how many times I don't write what notes I took, but the note reminded me of something else that I do write about. I often don't, I think I know what I'm writing about and then I come home later and it's something else entirely. 
but those notes have triggered that memory, which I didn't write down. But it was so indelible, it didn't need to be wrote down, written down, which is what you should uh, pay attention to on the road. If it's, a, if it's indelible to you, that's what you're writing about. You know, that's why I never take a picture of like something. Because I take a picture, I forget it. You know, like if there's information, I could, I could just take a picture of that information. I've forgotten it instantly, you know? So, but if you write, and writing it down is kind of the same. It, it locks it into you somehow, don't you find? Well, that's a technique I, I, I sort of had to train myself to do on the front end of my travel writing career, because I would do journal entries where I narrate the day, but then I realized that the real story that I was going to write about might not take place in the course of one day. You know, that it might be a constellation of details for many days that if, yeah. I've, that if I've connected them unnecessarily into a one-day narrative, I might miss. And so, um, like you, my notebook ended up being full of those telling details. Um, Tracy Kidder, the journalist, I think may have been a colleague of Jack Hitz, um, said that when he first started traveling or started uh, working as a journalist, he would write down uh, his emotions. But then he realized the emotions are easy to remember. You know, what you're going to forget are these details. Well, if I, if I have the detail, then it triggers my mind. If I wrote down that I, you know, saw this purple thing uh, outside the door on a, it just, I remember what I was feeling that. Which feeling, I don't really care about what I was, I trigger, I, I care about that it was, it elicited something in me, but my emotions, it's complicated. I don't think it's about the emotions, but if it's some, if, if some kind of experience happens, if a transformation of, or an altering of your perception of something happens, that's important. But, you know, that I was feeling melancholy is like saccharine. Do you know your story while, it, while your travel is playing Depends. out? Sometimes I'll know it before I get on the plane, and then I'll go look for proof of it. You know, uh, other times I won't know it. I recently went to, um, I was in Ireland for an extended period, so I wrote about the Aran Islands off the west coast, which is still a very sort of insular place and uh, speak Irish largely, very few people. That we, and I went there over half a dozen times over a five-month stretch because I was writing about sort of in, in the footsteps of J.M. Singh there as playwright, and he returned there year after year. And so I had this idea of just keeping returning, just over a shorter period, but keeping returning to this place. And the idea of going and returning to somewhere that begins to accumulate in you. And so because I knew I was going to keep returning, I had no plan ever, because I felt safe to not have a plan. And it was a very interesting, very different sort of article. Um, but other times I'm like, you know, I did a story about going to Tahiti to get a black pearl. To, and I knew, and I found, I, I found somebody down in Tahiti who was going to let me pluck my own black pearl from his pearl farm before I got on the plane. You know, it was a quest story to go find this pearl. And I, I... Uh, but you knew where they were. I knew where they, I knew it was going to end. Okay. You know, and so I, and then I, and then I strung along a narrative to, to meet that. Um, you know, it's like, what's his name? The guy who wrote um, John Irving. I've heard him say that uh, once that he doesn't start writing till he knows his last sentence, hmm. which I thought is the most unlikely person to say that because his books wander all over the world. They come back to that thing. But it made a lot of sense. If you know where you're going, you can go anywhere. And if you're writing to something, as you know better than me, probably, you know, if you're writing to something, every, the writing is relaxed because you're, go you're going right to that thing. And however you want to take a detour, go ahead, but you're going there. And, you know, that's always... So, you know, I write a lot of quest stories, or I used to, uh, a lot of quest stories, and they're easy because it, it follows a very s 
suspenseful narrative that is easy to structure. You know, there I always when people ask me if they ask me advice, I always say the quest stories are good. They're easy. Do you ever and they work? Do you ever tire of of certain tropes? Of yeah, so writing? I stop writing them. I get tired. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sort of formula, and you get tired of them. You know, but yeah, I'm sure I do. And has your relationship to travel writing? I mean, you're a veteran travel writer now. Um, has your relationship to being a travel writer changed since yeah, your first question? Yeah, certainly. Um, it's the same way as acting. It, um, you know, it was exciting and made me feel a certain way at the beginning, and then it, it sort of you become experienced at it and you don't have that blossom anymore and then you have experience which which substitutes for that enthusiasm and or that excitement and then you have to sort of then you sour and then you hopefully rediscover that and circle back around on it and stuff so you know I think when Keith Bellows died a number of years ago that really uh, he was a real mentor to me in a way I'd never had a mentor before in any aspect of my life and that was a real loss to me and so I've kind of did you know he was in poor health I did, yeah. Okay, I didn't. So that yeah. was a real surprise to me. Yeah. So uh, I I lost my sort of mojo out for it for a while, and you know, and then I was when I started writing books, and that's much more you know interesting ultimately than uh, just knocking out travel articles. So, uh, but sure, I lost a certain passion for it, and then you, you know, and I lost it. it was more that I I didn't like being confined to the way one had to tell a story in a travel article like that, like the Questor, where you fill a pattern, you know, it, it became less and less interesting. So I tried to write different kinds of stories or sort of essay type stories or things like that, that are, they're more of interest to me now. You, you wrote your travel book, you wrote Just Fly Away, which is a, from the point of view of a, of a teenager. Do you have another travel book in you in, in the near future? Yeah, I had some idea of this thing. I started to write something uh, when I was in Ireland. Um, I've had a long relationship with Ireland, um, and then I've married an Irish woman, and so I've had this sort of relationship with Ireland, so I was messing around with that, and we'll see what sort of comes of that. You're a solitary person. You like to travel by yourself. Would you characterize yourself as an introvert? Yeah, completely. Okay. Um, you just got back from a TV gig, right, today. You, you came, you showed up for this interview from Orange is the New Black, Yeah, directing right? a TV show. Yeah. Um, have you read uh, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, about I did, yeah. version? Yeah. 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 I thought it was really interesting. That was a real eye-opening book for me because I had no idea. I always thought, I, I hadn't really thought about introvert, extrovert until I read it. And uh, I was, and I, I, yeah, that was very affecting, that book to me. And this whole idea that it's not, introversion is not something one needs to get over, which is the American sort of way of, you just get over that, right. you know? Yeah. Well, why should one get over being the way that you are? And, you know, and I've, I've always been, I, I hate, um, brainstorming. I hate brainstorming. It makes me so uncomfortable. And it was the first time it was articulated to me clearly. It's like, you know, the best idea doesn't win. The loudest idea wins. And, you know, I do better off in a room and then I'll share my ideas with you and we can discuss them. But I don't sit here and like bang out ideas, the five of us in a room. It's like, oh my God, it's my idea of hell. And I will clam up and have nothing to offer. I think that book just sort of because I also consider myself an introvert, and actually travel is one way I, I use to navigate my introversion and to force myself to talk to people and be alone and, and all this stuff. But I think that book sort of allowed introverts to give themselves permission to be introverted. It certainly did me, yeah. Yeah, and she, she has the phrase, socially poised introverts, um, hmm. um, which it feels like, like I can um, give a keynote or teach a class and I feel fine, but then I have to rest, you know. Um, 
It's totally the same thing. I go to a party in 40 minutes, I'm exhausted. In 40 minutes, my wife is energized. We're completely the opposite. She just gets energized by, which again, it was in that book, energized by that kind of interact, social interaction. Me, it's just it's depleting. Yeah, and it's easier somehow to go present and like being directing a TV show. I'm out there in front of 60 people looking at me. What are we doing, Andrew? Okay, we're here, we're here, we're here, we're doing this, we're doing this. And yet, I'm sort of insulated in a certain way. And yes, yeah, certainly by the end of that day, I'm exhausted and want to go home and not talk to anybody. But then you have to go home and be a father, right? <laughs> well, you know, but it's also a very good thing for me in the sense that, uh, you know, if I were allowed too much of my own way of just sort of going into my own little world, it's probably not a very good thing. I think E.B. White talked about, which I always appreciated uh, when I read it, that he said he always appreciated that his family didn't, his wife didn't make him a nice writing studio. He wrote The Kitchen Table Amidst Chaos. And I, that's how I write. And I'm, I'm glad in a certain way. Have you ever written a travel article on an airplane? I can't, the only place I can't write is an airplane. I'm terrified of flying. Okay. I can edit on an airplane, but I can't write. I can write in the bathroom. I can write, I mean, I've been, my kids have been in gymnastics. I'm in the locker room banging away on the computer. I can write pretty much anywhere except an airplane because I, I'm so scared of flying. I'm too tense. That's great. I'm actually curious about something. Um, just because you, you've been so prolific as a travel writer and you're doing directing and you've done some acting again recently, right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, how do you how do you balance it? I mean, is it uh, and, I don't and balance the anything? <laughs> <laughs> so how does it, I mean? I'm, I'm I'm envious actually of of how busy you, you manage to well, be. Well, travel. I mean, it's all out of practicality, necessity. I can't. You know, travel writing is a wonderful thing. It doesn't put three kids through private school. You know, so um, and. You know, they feed each other creatively. If you, I don't usually like to use that word, but they feed each other. You know, it's still that you're still constantly figuring out in how's this propelling the story forward? How's this making the story forward? Why is this scene in the show? What's the scene? What's the story of this particular scene? You know, so you're always going back to story, 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 which is helpful for all those things. Could you say no to directing Orange is the New Black type thing? Is, is there, do you, do you, I mean, you've been directing TV a lot recently. Yeah, last number of years a lot, yeah. Do you do it because of the, um, the creative energy that intersects with the other creative parts of your life, or is it about private school tuition? That was sort of a leading well, question. Well, it's but. about both to some degree. And um, initially, it was very creatively rewarding. But as I get to the point where I've done it a lot, it, uh, you've got time. I'm beginning to tire of just servicing someone else's vision which is what you're doing as television directing. It's really about what the writer creates and the servicing the director is not the boss in TV. <coughs> you're servicing the writer's vision. And um, so I'm getting, to, and I've always kept my writing and my directing in my showbiz world separate because I have so many kind of, you know, disappointments, bitternesses, whatever you want to call them in show business, so much history and baggage. And the writing was such a refreshing rejuvenation of my sort of spirit that I didn't want them, I kept them very separate. And, uh, but now I'm getting to a point where it seems like um, better start to do something I'm getting so old that it's like to, to marry them and start doing my own in that regard because I'm, I am tiring a bit on like just servicing someone else's. It's a lot of work and why, you know, I should be doing my own. Being a showrunner or? But no, no, you know, I've been producing director and produce shows and things, but it's still the writer's baby. Right. And you know, and at the end of the day, if I wanted to turn left, he goes, but I wanted right, I gotta turn it right. And figure out how to way to turn it right that, you know, interpret what he says to make it cinematically right as opposed to just turning it right, you know. 
so anyway, you know what I mean? So, it's, so I, I think I'm getting to the point where I would like to do my own of that and try and do that. Meaning you're the writer. Mar yeah, to marry those two things. Um, although it risks sort of making writing, you know, throwing it in that dirty pool of show business where I've kept it out of so consciously. Do you have specific ideas for how you would do that? Or would, would you see yourself? Yeah, I mean, I have an idea now that I'm messing around with about for television. Because in this world now, television is uh, the greatest freedom in, and some of the best writing certainly is on TV now. And that was one thing I was going to ask is that is given your, your skill set and the diversity of your skill set, one was, are you going to write for television or film? Or, and the other one was, are you going to host a travel show? Have you thought about doing that? I, I'm not sure how, I mean, I've been approached a number of times and we've kind of messed around with it and the travel show bit. And uh, it's never come to fruition really. And, and honestly, I'm not sure how good I would be at it. You'd think I'd be comfortable in front of the camera and all that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know. I mean, I've made little videos of travel stuff. You know, I think the only one it works for to me is was Bourdain's show. And, you know, he was a funny mix. And uh, he could always go back to the cooking. You could always hang it on the cooking. And, you know, you go back and ground, reground the show. I don't know what grounding thing I would have other than I'm an actor, so you should be comfortable in front of the camera and traveling around. You know, so, uh, you know, what I always thought was interesting about Bourdain always, I never bought the whole bad boy kind of thing. I just thought he was a lonely, geeky guy who found himself on the road. That's what I identified with him, is about finding yourself on the road, you know, and in the kitchen and on the road. I found myself in acting and on the road, you know. But I, this whole bad boy thing I thought was just a, a defensive mask, you know. But what was interesting about him was his ability to kind of go, ah, oh, I was wrong, I don't know. You know, that's so, it was so endearing and made me, your heart go to him. Well, I think that was part of his, they played up this bad boyness of Tony Bourdain. Yeah, it seems silly to me. But in a way, it was just him having an opinion, which is sort of our duties as travel writers anyway. Yeah, you know, to, I mean, Paul Theroux said that it's kind of you're the first draft of a history in a certain way. And I think that's, you know, how, yeah, go, keep your eyes open, get some information, and then you can have an opinion about it. Doesn't mean you're right. Sure, and I think that's so absent, having an actual point of view on television, on travel television, is absent enough. Well, they're selling, aren't they? They're selling, you know. And they're holding people's attention, you know, and they're, and, and they're also creating fantasies that make us feel like we're not in our living room, I guess. Well, that's what the Bourdain show is good. I didn't do those fantasies particularly. You know, we shot well, and, uh, you know, but uh, it wasn't about some fantasy thing. But again, it was about, you know, interacting with people. One aside question, have you ever lived overseas or have you ever dreamed of being an I expat? lived in London for a short time in the early, very early 90s when I was running away from my life, yeah. Didn't work out, didn't make it, didn't, didn't <laughs> I couldn't run away. <laughs> Did that in, and then it, I have a home in Dublin now where my wife's Irish, so we go over to Dublin on a home, but I don't live there, you know. Was London pre-Camino de Yeah, Sinai? yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it didn't force your, it, it wasn't, didn't push you into the epiphany in the same way that that walking journey did? No, no, I, you know, no, I was just escaping, you know, I was just escaping, really, trying to escape, in hindsight, just trying to escape my life. Yeah, it was just a misfire. Yeah. You know? Which is a thing, yeah, we all, we all do an iteration of that. You know, in our 20s, kind of, well, I'll try this, and well, that, well, why, you know? Yeah. Well, I moved to Korea in my 20s, and I think if I'd moved to London, it wouldn't have been the same, you know? But I didn't have a weeping an interesting time fit. to be in Korea. That must have been interesting. You were in South Korea, in Seoul? Uh, I was in Busan, which is like the Los Angeles to Seoul's New York. Okay. Um, of course, Seoul is New York times 10. 
and, and very Korean. But um, yeah, uh, so 96 to 98. Um, wow. 20 years ago right now, I was just ending my stint in, in Korea. Did you like it? I did. And, but this is the thing is that I went there. Um, it was sort of a mid-20s crisis. Uh, and I went there not really sure what I was going to do next. I had lived in a van. Of course, now they have hashtag van life. People do this all the time. <laughs> I had no frame of reference. Actually, it was the same year you did, you did the Camino. Um, and I tried to write a book about it, and it was better than any graduate school, that I just f failed miserably to write a book about living in a van and traveling around, trying to be Jack Kerouac, sort of. Um, and so then I went to Korea because I could make money, and I had some friends there, and you could teach okay. English, and it's not that hard. And um, I was just really raw and vulnerable in a way I hadn't allowed myself to be yet. And because it wasn't a London, because I couldn't sort of approximate an industrialized English-speaking country, I had to bump my head up against otherness in a way that I wasn't used to. It became important. Like, Korean has become my comfort food uh, to this day. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, that that it, I was so emotionally raw there that it, was, it became special to me. Sure. Um, and it was maybe, again, not as focused as what happened to you on the Camino, but... Um, the two years I spent there, I, I sort of bashed my head up against another country in a way that was really interesting to me, uh, or, or very important for me. Um, yeah. Uh, and even though you know Korean Korea has this Han, you know they, they have the, this Koreanness. It's called the Han. It's the way of being Korean in the world. And if you have enough soju with a Korean, they'll eventually say you don't understand the Han. You know, mm. it's like yeah, I don't. But even though there's parts of Korea that I did not and may not ever understand, um, it was so important to how to myself as a writer and myself as a person, you know. Uh, and so having these experiences in our 20s or in early 30s or whatever, I think, are things we should allow ourselves to do, you know. Um, I think there's a million ways to avoid having that. And actually, that leads into another question I wanted to ask. And to, 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 our li li to my listeners who are in their 20s, maybe don't be afraid of um, being vulnerable and maybe a little bit depressed and not exactly sure what you want to do. But your Camino was in 94. You talked about your um, Lonely Planet or travel app was Jack Hit. It was calling Jack Hit at the yeah. offices of the yeah. Harpers. Um, I remember when I, when I lived in a van that same year traveling around America, I'd call my parents once a week and that was it. I had no other resources at all. I wasn't online. Uh, how do you think travel has changed now that you're a, a veteran travel writer? These just sound so fucking old here. Is that uh, I, I lament the GPS. That's all. You just can't get lost anymore. Hmm. And getting lost is huge. Getting lost is huge. That's everything when you travel. You know what I mean? When you travel, you're getting lost. Is so many good things come out of getting lost and taking a wrong turn. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, to be young now and have the... Like, if I were to wipe talked about walking the Camino again, to have the constant email and connection, you know, and even actively unplug with it, you're still choosing to do that and you're aware you're not connected and all that stuff. So that's weird, you know, whereas before it was easier to just go and be gone. You, the minute all you do is go and you're gone and that's all there is to it. Now it's much more of an act. You have to constantly stay actively be gone. And then eventually you're going to plug in and sort of check your email and it all comes flooding back for a second. You put out all the fires and then you go back to being, you know. So, but that's just the world now and that's, it's just different. But I certainly, uh, the GPS is the most sort of immediate one that I lament. Could you have had your epiphany on the Camino if you'd had a smartphone? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, the obvious sort of easy answer would probably be no, um, but 
because you just reach out to avoid the discomfort. That's what we do now. We all default to our phones the second we feel any discomfort or before we get lonely, before we're standing in lines and anyone thinks we're just alone or whatever. You know, we default all every second to our phones. Um, but, you know, there's something in that uh, Thoreau line that it is solved by walking or whoever said that, uh, that the Camino, you know, it's no surprise that I had that feeling in the Camino after I'd been walking for weeks. You know, I think walking, you know, dis maybe it would take a little longer, <laughs> but it, there's something about walking that is just the rhythm of walking and the sheer physical, slow, incremental wearing down that's powerful. Actually, a few wrap-up questions, one of which is the common question that we as travel writers get, like, what's your favorite place? So I'm going to preface this by quoting an email that you wrote to me years ago where you said, Kansas, I love Kansas. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. <laughs> Um, and of course, you were in a movie called Kansas. I, I spent 10 weeks in Lawrence, Kansas, and had really the time of my life. <laughs> so before we talk about your favorite places in the world, just, just humor me and talk about why you love Kansas. I don't know. It just captured something that I, I just had a great time. I, I just felt safe and received, you know, and it just felt, yeah, I, felt, I just felt comfortable and received there, and I was happy there. And were you walking the streets and flaneuring. Yeah, yeah, and we were just filming a movie and you know and then but we filmed just it was all outside and everything and I just loved being in America in that way. I spent very little time in America in Central America. So it just was you know. Would that qualify as a travel experience? Sure. Sure. Okay, now that I've got my home my home state uh, advocacy <laughs> out of the way. Uh, what, kind of find, what kind of places do you find yourself going back to in your mind or in real life? Well, I mean, I, I love remote places, you know, I love the Sahara, I love Patagonia, I love, but I go, you know, I go back to Hawaii a lot in my mind and in my life. I love Hawaii. I think Hawaii has a certain magic to it. Once you get, you know, Hawaii is interesting because there's certain pockets of it that have absolutely been destroyed and horrible and you don't want to anything but luckily they all seem to go to these one little spots and can convene there and they leave 90% of the untouched so you can still find Hawaii. I was there this winter that's that's very true. Yeah and so it's why it's easy to find if you just take 15 minutes and drive away from the resort um, but uh, you know I, I generally like anywhere I like going and you know I've said I'm, I'm sort of like my kids if I don't like somewhere I either need a nap or a snack you know <laughs> I like I can be find anywhere very interesting and anywhere can be hell you know. That's a real thing that, that, that rest and, and nutrition can change your, your... Oh, my God. Come on. It's totally true. I see it in my kids. I see it in myself. It's totally true. Um, so, but I, you know, I, I do tend to love remote places. I love feeling far from home. I, you know, there's nothing like that feeling is there where nobody in the world knows where you are. That's just a fantastic feeling. What's that? Fred Stark said that, that wrote that... Uh, Something like there's nothing quite so wonderful as waking up in a strange town where absolutely no one knows where you are. There's something about that that's thrilling, thrilling yeah. to me. That sounds familiar, and I think you at least paraphrased that in in your book too. I you must know? have, yeah, because I find that that when I read that, it really was, yeah, I'm with her, <laughs> you know. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Andrew McCarthy's travel writing, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. 
This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>